Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate, a specialist in the Berlin market for buying, selling, and managing properties. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. Our guests, award-winning research introduces a new perspective on value creation and competition when industry boundaries break down in the wake of ecosystem disruption. His two books, The Wide Lens and Winning the Right Game, have been heralded as landmark contributions to strategy literature. Clayton Christensen described his work as path-breaking, and Jim Collins has called him one of the most important strategic thinkers for the 21st century. It is a great pleasure to welcome to this series, celebrating the life and work and theories of Clayton Christensen. Ron Adner, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. Great to be here with you. It's great to have you on the show, Ron. And I thought what we do to start off is I've captured a little excerpt from a speech that Clayton gave in the Oxford Said Business School. And I thought I'd share that maybe as a way to tee us up. And then you'll explain maybe what was Clayton talking about here, because he talked about the huge contribution you had towards the innovator's dilemma. And then maybe after that, we'll talk about where you've gone after the innovator's dilemma after the internet came in and changed the ecosystem or created the ecosystem, if you want to call it that. So I'm going to share that little excerpt and maybe we'll take it up from there. Ron, he was at NCIAD at the time, wrote this model. And what he observed is that it actually is the pursuit of profit that causes the, the leaders in the industry to get out and the disruptors to get in. And, uh, that just changed my life when he understood that the real fundamental reason for disruption is the pursuit of profit. Then I could see things in so much clearer terms than I could see when it was just I could express things uh, in terms of um, probabilities. Um, and so I wrote the book, The Innovator's Solution, in which Ron's uh, core insight was the essence of my description of the phenomena of disruption. How beautiful to have that out there, that your work changed his life and changed his lenses and then led him onto the innovator's solution and thereafter, because you've gone even further than that since. But let's talk about how you contributed and the work you and Clay, because you had a great friendship as well, and he was due before his passing to write the forward to your latest book as well. So maybe you'll tell us a bit, bit about the relationship and then what Clay was talking about there. Yeah, boy, it's great to, it's great to see him on video. Um, you know, Clay, obviously you can tell from that clip, what a generous, what a generous guy he was. And we had a, a mutual fan club going. Um, I will claim to have been his biggest fan. Um, and the, so what, what, so what he's talking about there was if you, if you think about the, the innovators dilemma, which was you know, such a, it was such an important book because, and, and by the way, it came off of a number of research articles he had published prior. So I got to know Clay really the first time I, inter I intersected with his ideas was when I, I read a working paper of his when he was just starting out as an assistant professor. I was still in the PhD program. Um, and he had this incredible observation uh, that I'm sure you covered in the prior episodes of, Sometimes technology competition sorts out so that a worse technology wins, right? And that was really kind of a, that was a breakthrough observation. We'd had 
kind of classic innovation theory was, you know, radical innovations uh, beat up on incremental improvements to the old. So these things start off better than you and they kill you. We knew how to do that. Then there was uh, this guy named Richard Foster, actually, who wrote a book called The Attacker's Advantage. And he kind of popularized the notion of intersecting S-curves, right? Where the idea was you had a new technology come in and it, it starts off worse than the old technology. So it's easy to dismiss, but then it gets better than the old technology, right? The S-curves cross and that's when it takes the game. And Clay's observations with the, those, you know, the famous diagrams with those straight lines, the point was that the lines don't intersect. It's like the new technology starts off worse, it stays worse, and you're still in trouble. And that was just like, wow, mind-boggling. Um, and, of course, the engine that allowed that to happen was this, you know, in his diagrams, that dotted line, this notion of, well, what is it that customers really want? And this notion that a technology could be worse but good enough. So that's like, that was the, the, the core observation. Um, and in his early work, the way that Clay explained this dynamic hinged really on the idea that uh, customers are limiting what it is that firms can do or firms are allowing themselves through kind of drawing on this theory called resource dependence, that it's because the their, their existing customers didn't care about this stuff that firms were prevented from, from doing. That was his core engine. And then, and then he had this other twist, which is, and it turns out that once people are satisfied on something, they start caring about other things, which kind of makes sense intuitively. Um, the way I come into this story was to really start thinking about disruption as, you know, it's not just something that happens to a firm. It's something that happens in a market. And disruption happens when you had you have these two, two segments that used to be separate segments, a high-end segment and a low-end segment. And suddenly they collapse into one segment, right? It's where the people who are buying the, you know, the old, the good technology are suddenly buying the bad technology. And so suddenly, if you're an incumbent, what you're seeing is a whole new set of entrants into your industry. Um, and so it was, it was my work that really kind of specified how the, the, the structure of the demand environment and the symmetries and asymmetries between the markets that are being served would give rise to different competitive dynamics, which could be isolation or it could be convergence or disruption, which is this unique case where it's, remember, disruption is you're at home and somebody comes and knocks down your door and enters, right? I mean, it could easily be that, you know, you invade them, right? That would be convergence. You don't see that in Clay's theory. And then kind of usually we just think about isolation where these two markets remain separate. So what he was talking about in that very generous clip is how beginning to see the structure of demand and the asymmetry between these markets begins to let you understand the dynamics in, in an additional way. Um, and uh, so that was basically the, the first part of my career was pulling out these ideas around demand and demand heterogeneity. And this is like my pursuit for profits. And Clayton said that in that clip kills me because I'm like kind of going, well, they're my best customer. I need to keep satisfying them, keep giving them what they need. But in there, as you recognize, I create a blind spot. So part of what helps us understand when disruption will happen has to do with what customer preferences are. But it also has a lot to do with 
the logic for why, why would a customer ever buy a good enough, but still worse product, right? And the answer has to be because you're giving them more value with this worse product. And so why would you be able or willing to do that? That has to do with your cost positions. And that has to do with the kind of margin that you're willing to serve the market. in. Um, and so here again, you know, we can refine the notion of disruption to think about the kinds of potential threats that we're seeing. You know, what's interesting is if you step back, the world that Clay was writing in, in the 1990s, really kind of what he was trying to do is, and what, what he did accomplish hugely was to tell people in the large companies, hey, you need to get uncomfortable quick, right? You guys are, you guys are, are, are trying to do the right thing which by the way, was a beautiful thing about Clay, right? I mean, it was like, it was a reflection of his, like his own humanity that unlike, you know, other management scholars who were trying to show like, here's what makes managers, here's, here's why they're short-sighted or whatever. He was always from the perspective, these are good people doing their best, right? There are no agency issues. There's just like really good people trying to do the right thing and giving rise to these dynamics that in the end don't serve them. Um, and so, right, and that's this idea of lenses, right? Like how can, what are the different directions you can observe uh, a context from and predict what's going to happen? So one of the things that, you know, I added to, to that story was recognizing the starting positions for these potential rivals in terms of their cost positions um, and in terms of the competition that they are facing in their home markets, right? So, Again, if you think about the core of disruption is there's an existing market segment and competition is coming from a different market segment, right? People who didn't used to sell to your customers. The question is what would compel those firms to enter your space, right? And that has to do with, you know, the profit they might get there. And that has to do with maybe they start off with lower cost or maybe if they can pick up the volume that is now available in your market, they could drive economies of scale and get to even lower cost, right? Or they have high costs, but the competition is so terrible where they live that, you know, yours looks like the better situation. And so again, it's understanding the starting point for the potential disruptor that also informs us about the rise of disruption. Right? So rather than just thinking about it from the incumbent's perspective, we want to think about it from the potential entrance perspective. And what that does is it gets us, you know, so I had this article in 2002, the title was, when are technologies disruptive? And, you know, in some ways the title tells you, you know, this, the, the implicit title is, and when are they not? Right? So how do we, how do we parse out the world in this way? And how do we get more and more clues? Because, I mean, I would say today, leadership in, you know, you, you're not in, if you're in business, you are paranoid, right? So the notion of needing to wake up, you know, executives and large companies to potential threats, like Clay so much overachieved that, right? Today, it's like nothing but paranoia, which also is unhelpful, right? So like you got to sort through if there are a thousand potential threats, you can't respond to all of them. How do you filter through to figure out which are the right ones? So that's where that that that's kind of where where I would say like the the refinements were coming from, and that's actually what led me down this 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 further pathway into thinking about 
ecosystems and the structure of ecosystems, which we can discuss later. Um, but that's so that's that's the that's our intersection. Let's talk about some of the articles you wrote because I read those articles that you kindly sent on to me to prepare and. I, and I just want to say for our audience, at a later date, Ron has kindly agreed, we'll come back, we're going to cover in depth The Wide Lens, which was his brilliant book, and his latest book as well, Winning the Right Game Over My Shoulder there that you might see on the bookshelf. And I'm so looking forward to digging into them. Maybe we'll give a couple of examples, I thought, before. One of the articles I wanted to share was when you talked about a demand-based perspective on technology life cycles, because you, you talked about two curves and it wasn't like a jump from one S curve to the next. It was like the technology S curve and then the demand S curve. And they're, they're both two different things. And you need to understand the context of both. This shed a light on a lot for me about what you're talking about there, because this allows then for the startup or the newcomer to spot an opportunity in a changing ecosystem. Maybe we'll go there. And then I thought maybe we'll share an example that people can relate to. They're a good man for reading those articles, actually. Um, the, so, all right, let me, let me step back. So kind of the, usually we hear about S curves, right? And, and the, what we talk about mainstream is the idea of a technology S curve and the fact that, um, and it's the relationship between effort and time or performance. And the idea is that's a, not a linear relationship that usually in the, the beginning of a technology wave, you're putting a lot of effort as you're figuring out the basics. So you're not showing a lot of progress on the performance axis. So it's going to, it starts off as a flat line, if you will. Um, and then it gets easier and easier to, to, to get value out of effort. So we get like a rise. And then at some point, technology maturity hits and that, that S curve flattens out. And that's kind of when the technology matures. Um, and historically we've used that abstraction to think about, well, the challenge of moving along that S curve or what happens when somebody introduces a new technology and a different S curve. If you step back and you think about the challenge of, you know, people innovate to create value for their customers, right? And again, one of the great contributions that Clay made to this literature was that dotted line in his graph which said technologies don't compete with technologies. They compete with technologies for customers. And so for me, that was, again, that was like such a powerful sentiment. I was working on that before I knew about his work, but where, where we converged was this notion of how do you think about value from the customer's perspective? And in particular, how do you come to grips with the fact that sometimes like this good enough perspective, Right. Historically, people thought the way you win is by putting out something better. But, you know, even in the 90s, we were beginning to see this phenomenon of what what I termed decreasing marginal utility from performance improvements. Right. That, you know, it, you, you get to a point where a firm can give you more and more performance, but you care less and less. Um, right. And kind of the, 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 the classic example was, you know, in processors. Right. That in the beginning with personal computers, you wanted a better, better processor, but at some point it turns out, you know, you can only type so fast. And so your willingness to pay for a faster processor begins to peter out. You still want faster processors. You're just not going to give Intel as much money for the additional performance. Now, if you think about that, then from what I, so a, a customer perspective, it gives rise to what I termed a demand S curve, where the axes 
are not the, the performance that you get from effort, but the impact that you get on willingness to pay from increases in performance, right? And so the, the shape of the demand S curve is in the early phases, customers want performance. That's their bottleneck. And in that regime, the firms that are winning are the ones that give you the best performance. Once you get past a certain level of performance, you pass a threshold level of performance, customers start trading off price and performance. And that's kind of the, the sensible place for a mature in industry to be. But then you get to this other phase where there's so much performance in the product, so much more than what a customer wants. And suddenly what's going to matter for a customer's utility function, what's going to is just the absolute unit price, right? Because, you know, as so you think about it, you know, I, so, you know, I'll tell the, the story in the context of tires, you know, the early tire industry, the, you know, the, the name, name of the game was how do I get you more miles, more durability in a tire? So if I gave you a tire that went 10,000 miles, that was so much better than a tire that went 5,000 miles and needed to be replaced, right? Then we, we, we move into this more vertical part where we worry about price performance and, you know, at 20,000 miles per tire, 30 miles, 30,000, that's great. But imagine a tire that could go 200,000 miles before replacing. And now think about how much more you'd pay for a tire that would go 400,000 miles. You're like, well, you know what? I'm going to replace the car after 80,000 miles anyway. So all that's going to matter there is not the, the durability of the tire, but what's the absolute price, right? And so this demand S-curve gives us a different clue because what we can now ask about is historically we would ask, well, where is the technology S-curve flattening out? And now we're going to say, well, which of these two curves is going to flatten out first? Is it your ability to deliver performance to the customer or is it the customer's willingness to value that additional performance? And depending on which one of those two flattens out first, you're put in a very different world, right? And again, going back to, to, to Clay's story on disruption, that's a world where you're over-delivering on technology, right? And really what's driving that dynamic is this decreasing marginal utility for performance improvements that's opening the door for the inferior product to, uh, to march into your market. Ron, I wanted to grasp an example here because let it, people seeing this come to life in their own world is how they learn best because then you see the lens and then you see through the lens, you kind of go, oh, that's what those guys were talking about. And one of the places we're seeing this at the moment is I, I really feel there's almost like a technology overshoot with a product like the iPhone. We're already seeing a decrease in the iPhone. Maybe it's because people got the phone through their business and that's not happening anymore. If they were to buy them personally, if you're a consultant, a lone wolf consultant, you're like, you know what, I'll get a cheaper phone. And there's so many cheaper, cheaper versions now that are good enough. But then you come to this decision, well, if I'm part of an Apple ecosystem, if I have a Mac or if I have an iPad, and if I have all the apps, the apps are just better because the Apple have invested in the apps and they've kept it clean and then there's privacy. I'm in the ecosystem of Apple and therefore I might stay in there. And this, I think, is a nice bridge and a nice segue to your latest work. Actually, that, that is a perfect segue um, because, I mean, because it, 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 it's, it, I mean, in some ways, it shows where the where the logic begins to break down, right? So, you know, I would say of Clay's 
The one prediction that no one ever forgives Clay for was that the iPhone would be a disaster, right? Because according to his theory of disruption, it's exactly the story. Xiaomi should have, Android should have wiped them off the face of the earth. Um, and he and I had great conversations about this. Um, and I think really that's where we, we run up against the limits of classic disruption. Right. So classic disruption really is focused about it's focused on the firm and the customer. Um, when we use the word ecosystem, what we what we're doing is we're saying, you know, there's a firm, there's a customer, but there are other actors out there. Um, and the, so that, I mean, the yes, yeah, so like the last 10, 15 years of my life has been really focusing on how do we transition into this. Uh, into thinking about ecosystems, which you know today is almost as big a, bu a buzzword as disruption, not quite, but um, the, the the we know that the game has changed in the context of collaboration and interdependence, right? And so, if you go back to the early days of the iPhone, right, what was missed in classic disruption was the role that operators played in Apple's success, right? So again, if you're a customer and I'm selling you this product for $1,000 and you can get a good enough product for $400, well, according to Clay, you'd get it for 400 and he is correct. But what if that was subsidized for you by your telephone operator and they're willing to give you that $1,000 phone for an extra $10 a month and they're willing to do that, not because they're so kind-hearted, but because they're going to, you know, grab a monthly plan out of you where you're going to pay them $80 instead of $40, right? And, and, and the, the, the entrance of this additional actor into the game changed everything, right? Now, the story of the iPhone, which I, I look at both in wide lens and uh, more... I, 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 you could look at Apple, both kind of the, the story of the rise. And then today, I think the story of struggling with maturity. Um, so you got to remember when iPhone was first launched, there was no ecosystem. There's no app store, right? It was two years before they launched the app store. Um, so really it was the way in which Apple managed the relationship with the operators that gave them uh, the, the, the foothold from which they could then build this app store ecosystem. And one of the amazing kind of the underappreciated uh, strategies that Apple pursued when they launched the iPhone was that they offered it exclusively through one operator in every country, right? Which is interesting, right? And that, that by the way, that was probably the biggest breakthrough. The breakthrough move of the iPhone was not the touchscreen, which HTC had a, had, had cloned the iPhone and had it in the market before Apple actually launched the iPhone into the market. It wasn't the notions of apps and app stores. Um, you know, we've had apps since the 90s with the Palm Pilot, and Nokia had had an app store since, I don't know, 2004, right? An operating system for your phone. You know, the other cell phone manufacturers have collaborated with this Symbian operating system since the late 90s. None of that was really that special. The thing that was amazing was this offer of exclusivity that Apple gave where they, that accomplished two different things, right? One is it created a bidding war 
for this phone. Because again, the thing that made the iPhone special for the consumers, if you remember the time, it's not that it was a special phone. It was an upgrade on your iPod that came with a phone, right? And so what the operators were getting when they were getting the exclusive on the iPhone was they were going to get this bucket of Apple users who would be a lot more loyal to, you know, their relationship with Apple than to their relationship with AT&T versus, versus Verizon in the U.S. Um, or, you know, Orange and British Telecom. And so that led to this subsidization. That's what led to this totally different relationship that then Apple was able to leverage into um, a critical mass of users, into control over distribution of applications, which was, had been dreamed of, but not accomplished by particularly Nokia. Um, and so this is where, so, so, so the, you know, the knockoff phone example is where we see the entry of new actors into the delivery of the value proposition. And this is where we get to see that, ah, there is this difference, right? When you start changing the, the boundaries of the industry, the way we think about disruption, the way we think about strategy does need to change. Um, and that's, you know, that's great news for, for, for those of us who are trying to think about new stuff, because it means the world isn't fully explained yet. Maybe we'll give another example, because you see, as you talk about it in your work, the wisdom of some players, like, for example, Amazon, to understand who the initial real customer is. If you launch a Kindle, it's not just about providing something to the end customer. You need to understand the players in the ecosystem and you need to satisfy the players in the ecosystem. Like you said, identifying O2 at the time in Ireland versus Vodafone and identifying this battle that would go on between them was a key play. And similarly, Amazon realized, you know what? There's people out there that are much better at building e-readers, Sony, but we can compete in a much different way. And maybe you'll unpack this one for us. Yeah, no, actually, that, that's, that, that's, a, that, that's a great example um, that um, actually in wide lens, I talk about this in depth, um, where, you know, Amazon's Kindle, when it first comes out, is a more expensive product than the Sony e-reader. Okay? And by the way, so it's, it's worse, like the screen resolution is worse. Everything about it is worse um, as a product. Um, and it's more expensive. But what Amazon does that Sony doesn't is they're really focused on their adoption chain, right? So beyond their end user, they're focused on who else needs to buy in. And what Amazon did was they made tremendous moves with the book publishers to assure that they, Amazon, would be able to have access to the latest bestsellers in a way that Sony was not able to get the booksellers to give it to them. And what's interesting is that, you know, part of the way Amazon could do that is, well, okay, they had relationships with book publishers because they were already selling physical books. Yeah, but, you know, book publishers have phones. Sony's a well-known brand. Sony had an online bookstore. They could try to have those same conversations. The real distinction is that when the Kindle came out, it was a totally closed device. Right. So with the Sony e-reader, you could read books in like a Sony format. You could read PDFs. You could really read books in whatever format you want. And you could get your books from uh, the Sony bookstore or any other online bookstore. Whereas with Amazon, you could only get your books from Amazon. 
The Kindle would only support Amazon's proprietary encryption format. So it was incredibly close and incredibly limiting. And so if you hear that as a consumer, you're like, well, that sounds like a worse deal for me. But if you, put, if you think about this idea of an adoption chain, right? So okay, the kind of short summary of wide lens is you need to, the way you expand your lens when you look at an ecosystem is you think about what it is that you need to execute. But the two additional pillars you need to think about are who else needs to innovate for your innovation to matter, this idea of co-innovation. And the second is the idea of the adoption chain, which is who needs to not innovate, but who needs to buy in for your innovation to deliver its value proposition. If you think about that Kindle versus Sony prospect, not from the perspective of the consumer who says, oh, this is terrible, it's so close, it's so limiting, but from the perspective of the critical adoption chain partner, which is the book publisher. I'm a book publisher and Sony's telling me, oh, consumers can get their books from my store or any other store or really anywhere else on the internet, right? That is like a, you're asking me to sign up for the Napsterization of my industry, right? Where the constraints that Amazon puts on the consumers are really there to satisfy what it is that the publishers want. And so kind of the when we look at that story, what we see is that Sony had the better product, but Amazon had a vastly superior solution, right? Again, this is where, you know, our, you know, you need a different lens and strategy to allow us to think about not just the head-to-head -head competition that we're used to, product versus product, reader versus reader, but, you know, how does a solution come about? And again, when the solution comes about through collaboration with partners, we have to strategize partnership as crisply and critically as we strategize the way we think about consumers. Ron, you've reminded me of something uh, way back in that article, a demand-based perspective of tech lifestyles, and a, a little excerpt because I think this would be useful for, for people to understand. And again, this links nicely to Clayton's work as well as a segue to there. You said firms can attempt to influence the demand environment through direct actions. An obvious step is to engage in increased branding and advertising, e.g. back then Intel's Intel Inside campaign, and beyond traditional marketing techniques to increase awareness and perceptions of value, firms can take active steps to increase the importance of their offer by making it more central to the value customers derive from their offers, essentially positioning themselves as performance bottlenecks. I thought that was useful to shine a light upon because when you use what you said there and then think about Clay's curve and the dotted line, if you can understand that implicitly and then understand the ecosystem and understand also what the customer derives as value or what they could, you can almost become a puppet master of that and in a way, at least give yourself the best chance of success. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's great that you picked up on that. Um, because, you know, again, if we go back to that, you know, the central figure for the innovators dilemma that I think really is kind of the central disruption figure, um, we have those technologies that are competing with each other and we have that customer line, right? Kind of the, 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 the shallower line, the flatter line. And the, the idea in this paragraph and more broadly is that you can think about that line that defines what is good enough um, as itself something that you can influence, right? So if you can find ways of shifting that line up, right, you can postpone disruption. 
by giving people you know more confidence or by giving people a different functional functionality set or kind of most uh, powerfully by changing the game right and again if we think about you know early on the competition in phones was about who's going to give you the better phone and who's got the better user experience um, and who's got the better integration into a music player, right? Like the iPhones integrated so beautifully into iTunes and, you know, was your new iPod. But the big shift was the shift to productive apps on your phone, right? Which redefined that proposition, right? And so really, I think kind of the, the call here is to think about the way you construct your value proposition, right? So like there are three different levels of thinking. One is vis-a-vis rivals, um, whether they're your existing rivals or rivals that are coming in from this other market. The other is thinking about your customers. But the third, and this is the transition to ecosystems, is thinking about the partners you can bring together to change the value proposition. And when you do that, that's when you change the game on both the customer and the rival, right? That's when you open up this new market space. Um, and that's, you know, that's the space where um, I think, right, you know, today I would say is where, is where the greatest opportunity and the greatest, the greatest threat lies. Because, you know, we are now very smart about how to compete within the boundaries of an industry. And so what we're wrestling is with, you know, all these, spaces where the boundaries are no longer so clear, right? Like if I'm a bank today, I don't even know what money is anymore, right? So it's not, you know, is it, you know, the, the, you know, do I have a branch on the high street or is it just online? It's, you know, am I covering crypto? You know, some teenager in their basement is somehow, you know, minting money like a government. How do I deal with that? And Ron, maybe one last thing to talk about would be, and this is probably talked a lot of the work you do in Tuck Business School and indeed with your own business, is culture. Because one of the big challenges with all this is we've been taught for a world that's drastically changed. And and this is where you were saying Clay had a huge hand in playing this and, and started to tweak people to kind of go, you need to be uncomfortable. People have started to become uncomfortable. As you said, we're positively paranoid now. Hopefully we should be. Now we're through your work and others understanding ecosystems. But a huge piece that's often missing is the acceptance of failure towards success, the acceptance that you're not going to get it right all the time, the acceptance that it's going to take a new type of mindset and also a very neurodiverse group of people in order to succeed. And I'm sure you see this a hell of a lot with your work in lecturing, but also in your strategy business. I think it's a critical point. Um, and there actually, there are two different, two different sides to it. I think there, so we know, we know that culture is important. Um, but again, you know what? It's 20, it's 2023 already. Very few places don't know that anymore. Right. And there are very few companies that aren't trying to work on their culture. So there's always more work to be done, but I don't think that that's a blind spot. Um, I think that the, I think we load up a lot onto culture when there are other failure modes that are not cultural, right? So, you know, when I look, when I work with, with companies, the challenge that they have is not 
that they don't know they need to change. Right? It's not that they're, you know, they're, they're bringing me in, they're paying me a lot of money. It's not because they're hesitating. If you look at companies, if you look at how much time and money and resources being spent on innovation and internal cultural change, you can't say that they don't know what's important. Right? So what's, what else could be going on? For me, actually, I think, particularly in the modern era, it's that the language of strategy is no longer appropriate for the current challenge, right? So this is, again, this is a, 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 we know so much about how to compete in industries and we know how to think about substitute threats and Clay had this huge impact on not just kind of the way in which companies thought about opportunities and threats, but what they were willing to fund and subsidize. But what we are far less sophisticated about is how to express like the language, the grammar, the logic of strategy when it falls outside of industry boundaries, right? When it moves into this, you know, this ecosystem space is where we are, we're so far back, um, right? When I think about, you know, the, 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 the research, the books that I've written there, you know, I, I, I always tell, you know, I tell students, I tell clients, the value here is not just the frameworks as a way of getting to a better answer, it's you think about these concepts and frameworks as a language so that you can communicate that answer in your organization, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, the, 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 the impact of, of Clay's work, introducing the language of good enough into an organization, suddenly, even if you're in leadership, if you didn't have that phrase, you couldn't explain to people why you're making the investment in this thing that is obviously worse. But as soon as you had that as a concept, you could coordinate things, right? And this is what we don't want to do is blame culture for bad language or bad strategy, right? And I think culture in that regard has become like this big catch-all. That's almost an excuse, right? So we look for, you know, for, we look for teams that, that get it, right? When, when somebody says, I'm looking for somebody who gets it, what they're admitting is, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right? I don't know how to express what I'm thinking, so I need like some mind meld. Um, and the larger your organization, the harder that is. So I, I would say, yes, we have to be very careful and, uh, and, and, and lean forward into culture, but we should be at least as lean forward into making sure that the, the strategy constructs and concepts that we have, not just in the strategy department, right? not just in the C-suite, but the way we communicate throughout the organization allows people to have coherence in the way they make sense of the world so they can then take actions that are consistent with what you want the strategy to be. As a little preachy, but I, it's actually, it's, it's something I got to tell you. Again, this is some, you know, one of the greatest things about Clay for me was the, like this absolute belief that people and organizations are striving to do the right thing. Right. And, and, and from there, you get all kinds of empathy and you get all kinds of respect that prevents you from just blaming casual things for why they're not getting it wrong, why they're not, why they're not getting it right. And so I fear that, you know, kind of the culture catch all is not, not as respectful of their hard work. Right. And so just in, in other words, to give them advice of think about more about culture is not actually helping move the ball forward. Right. And that's why I would, I, I would make a, Yes, if you haven't thought to think about structure, wow, you know, welcome to, you know, 1972. But 
if you're, you know, active and aware today, yeah, it's culture, but it's all, it has to be complemented with these constructs that weren't around and, and, and we were finding in a world that was really much more defined by industries than it is today. And bravo to you for saying that because you've, you've seen that transition. You've seen the language evolve over time. And it's, it's so funny you say this because I, I did a show recently with two amazing linguists called The Language Game. And it's why I did that show in the innovation show is because language and ensuring that message sent equals message received throughout an organization is such a challenge, but also so essential when it comes to transform successful transformation. Ron, it's it's been a one piece of common language is thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show, and and thank you for your contributions to Clay, and thank you for agreeing to come back and cover your own books, The Wide Lens, and Winning the Right Game, which I'm so very much looking forward to sharing. I'm sure you've really wet the appetite of our audience as well. Maybe we'll tell people for who who want to get a copy because. Winning the Right Game has just come out on audiobook as well. It's just fresh off the press, the audio press as well. Maybe we'll share an overview of what that is, what what people hope to get out of that book, and then also where can people find you from a college perspective and then also from your own strategy business? Well, look, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me. But, you know, even more, thanks for doing this series on Clay, who, you know, I think is, you know, so dearly missed. And, and it's, 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 it's great to like bring a holistic view on his work. So I'm grateful to you for that. And yeah, it, it, this was so much fun to talk with you. Um, the, yeah. So, you know, winning the right game is, you know, actually Clay was going to write the forward um, is really for me, it was a transition. So I wrote a book called the wide lens um, came out in 2012. And it was really focused on how do you change the way you think about innovation when you realize that you need to assemble multiple pieces. That's this idea of co-innovation and adoption chain. Um, so it was, it was really like, how do you understand the structure of an ecosystem? Winning the right game um, for me was like this subsequent discovery of if that's how people are, just, are creating value, what does that mean for the way in which you need to think about competition? And really winning the right game is, you know, it's the transition from thinking about disruption within industry boundaries to how do you disrupt across industry boundaries and redraw the space. Um, and, you know, little teasers, it turns out a lot of the things that we think we know turn out to be 100% wrong in this ecosystem context. So kind of concepts uh, that worked in an industry setting stop working in an ecosystem setting, um, in the, the the first chapter, which by the way people can read, uh, people can read the, fir the first chapter of both books is posted on my website, ronadner.com. Um, so you know that's free there, and I hope it's helpful to people. Share it with friends. Um, the shifting from thinking about competition in the context of well-defined boundaries, where you know who your rivals are, and you're all going after the same prize. Um, because if you, if you think about like even like the, 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 the great disruption examples, you know, the discount airlines versus the full service airlines, um, the mini mills versus the integrated mills and steel, they're all about different ways of delivering the product, but they're selling the same thing. You know, EasyJet is still selling you an airline ticket the same way that British Airways is. 
Um, you know, Nucor Steel is still selling you steel by the ton the same way that Bethlehem Steel is. Whereas the world we're seeing today is you're having rivals come onto the space from different places and they're, they're pursuing your customers with a different set of, not just a different set of technologies, but with a different goal and a different motivation, right? That requires a new playbook. And that, so that, that's what winning the right game is about, right? Like that title is supposed to tell you two different things, right? One is that there's more than one game being played on the same board. And two, it should raise the specter of you could be winning, but winning the wrong game. And that's going to feel a lot like losing. Um, so that's anyway, that, that's that's what the new book is about. It's great, man. I'm so looking forward to getting stuck in as well. And the subtitles, How to Disrupt, Defend and Deliver in a Changing World. Author of The Wide Lens and this baby, Winning the Right Game, Ron Adner, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate, a specialist in the Berlin market for buying, selling and managing properties. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.de or next-estate.com.